Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Inner Renewal Week 2021. We have a wonderful theme this morning, or this week, I should say. It's living the yogic lifestyle based on the teachings of our great master, Paramahansa Yogananda. And we'll be sharing throughout the week different aspects of this, and we'll be offering you breakout groups and uh, sadhanas in the morning, meditations, questions and answers, and for those who are, who are eligible on Friday, culminating with a Kriya Yoga initiation. So we are so happy we've, to be able to share this with you, not in person yet, but live streaming. And it's a wonderful, this Inner Renewal Week was conceived of some years ago as a way Spring hasn't quite started. We're in the middle of the pandemic. But it's been a time of challenge, of stress for people. And now we can all come together and focus our thoughts, our energy, our devotion, our actions on the teachings of our great master to help uplift our consciousness and bring his presence more strongly into the world. For those of you who have been with us for a long time, we used to call Inner Renewal Week Winter Renewal Week. But then one year during the middle of the week, we got about three feet of snow. And so we decided maybe we don't want to say winter renewal. But I'm rethinking that. This year we could use three feet of snow. So, But I think we'll stay with Inner Renewal Week. Let's begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend, beloved God, great masters, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, beloved Guru, Paramahansa Yoganandaji, great saints of all religions, we humbly bow to you all. Bless us, Bless us with ever more concentration, with ever more concentration on Thee alone. On Thee alone. Help renew our spirit. Help renew our spirit. Our dedication. Our dedication. Our love for Thee. Our love for Thee. And let us all help support each other. And let us all help support each other in this divine search. In this divine um, peace. Amen. So we'll now have a song by Swami Kriyananda. Oh, uh-huh. 
We have a long-standing tradition that at the beginning of Inner Renewal Week, we always begin by the blowing of a conch. The conch represents the call of the chakras to call us within, just as Krishna's flute is the call of the second chakra, drawing us back to spirit. And so as the Bhagavad Gita starts just before the big battle, it begins by the two sides making their various noises. And the Pandavas, who represent the spiritual side, and the Pandava brothers specifically represent the chakras, they blow their conches. And that ref refers to the sound of each of those chakras. And the Kuravas, they bang cymbals and clatter and make a lot of shouting noises, and that's the sound of the senses pulling us outward. So the pull inward and the pull outward is the eternal battle that was betray, uh, portrayed in the Mahabharata. And so without further ado, we will now blow the conch calling us inward. That was, especially for my friend Sam Baroni, he wrote a couple of days ago saying that uh, he wished he were able, he and his wife were able to be here in person this year, sitting in the front row, listening to the blow of the conch uh, opening Spiritual Renewal Week. So that's for you, Sam. Or I guess as they would say in Hollywood, I played it again, Sam. Well, that's an obscure pun, I'm sorry. Uh, at any rate, the purpose of Inner Renewal Week is, as I was saying, to again call us inward into our spiritual search. 
And this week, as Davey said, we're going to be talking about living the yogic lifestyle, but specifically, we'll be focusing on living the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Davy and I, this morning, are going to talk about living the autobiography of a yogi, living those themes, those great teachings, actually applying them to our lives. On Wednesday, we will talk about conversations with Yogananda, and on Friday, about the essence of the Bhagavad Gita. And then tomorrow and Thursday, we'll have other speakers. Tomorrow, Jaya and some other speakers will be talking about Kriya Yoga, and on Thursday, we'll have a panel talking about communities. Because these are the major themes that Yogananda brought and that Swami Kriyananda, in particular, um, one might say, decided to concentrate on these aspects. But coming back now to the theme for this morning, how to live the autobiography of a yogi how to live according to that. You know, I don't know about you, many of you listening, watching, have been long, long time devotees. And in fact, let me say that in a renewal week, we specifically address the classes to those de deeply dedicated devotees that we, we, in this week, we focus um, on those people who are really pursuing the spiritual path. We invite everyone to join us, but we, this is, one might say, the graduate course uh, in these teachings, and you're welcome to, anyone is welcome to attend, but we want to make this week deeper than we do in many of the other weeks. And so Davy and I, at least, won't be holding back and what we talk about, we'll try to take it as deeply as we're capable of doing. So, at any rate, many of you have read the autobiography many, many times. I, I long ago ceased to count how many times I've read that great book, which I consider to be a scripture. But reading it and enjoying it, being inspired by it, is different from taking those teachings and living it. And this week in particular, we want to emphasize that those teachings that Yogananda gave us in Autobiography of a Yogi and the other books we'll be discussing are not meant just for our education and entertainment, as he said. They're meant really as a guide for how to live. Let me give a specific example, and, and I wrote this in my blog. You know, the very first sentence of the autobiography, it begins, the characteristic features of Indian culture have long been a search for eternal verities and the concomitant disciple-guru relationship. Now, if you're reading the autobiography, you read that sentence, of course, thank you, and you just proceed on, 
And you read through the book and you read about miracles and you read about saints and you read about family things going on and the search and the finding of the group. All of those things that are portrayed in there, we read about them, but do we try to take the next step? And that's what this week is about, to take the next step so that we begin to live these teachings. So let's come back just using that example of that first sentence. So we might begin by saying the characteristic features of Ananda society have been the search for eternal verities and the concomitant disciple-guru relationship. Or more personally, we might say the characteristic features of my life have long been that. Because instead of just glossing over it, we need to pull back. Now, what does it mean in your life, in my life, to focus, as Master introduced and focused his book, on the search for eternal verities? That's the search for God. What does it mean to focus your life on that search for God? You know, if we're going to really focus on that, then we need to take it off of the bookshelf, out of the pages of Autobiography of a Yogi, and we need to apply it in our life. Later, I'll give us an exercise, uh, that a homework exercise that I would like us to do. But I would like us to go through, and I'll just I'll explain it in more uh, length, but take, take any chapter from the autobiography, that which, with which you resonate, and go through it and actually look and write down in a notebook, what is Master trying to tell you in that chapter? What is the teaching? What, what is the practical message there that can help guide your life? And so... For me, when I read that first sentence, I begin to meditate and really think about, is the search for eternal verities, is the search for God really central to my life? Well, for myself, and I'll speak perhaps for all of us, on a broad scale it is, of course. I've made that the purpose of my life. In fact, those of us who have taken the various vows that Swami Kriyananda has written, he always starts those vows by reminding us that the, the reason that we've incarnated is to search for God. And as you take those vows at deeper and deeper levels, finally the Swami vows uh, begin by, I embrace that from now on, the only purpose of my life is the search for God, the only purpose. And so, whether it's the only purpose or whether it's a central purpose, Master begins that great book by reminding us that that is the purpose of life. That's the purpose of the book. That's the purpose of Indian culture. That's the purpose of Ananda. The whole reason that we exist, Ananda exists 
in order to create the best environment that we possibly can to support each other in that search for eternal verities, in that relationship of the disciple to the guru. And then the concomitant disciple-guru relationship. What is your relationship to the guru? How do you express that? How do you work on it? How do you deepen it? And so instead of just reading, as I say, we should take very carefully, we should go through and really look and say, what is Master trying to tell me? Now, he doesn't say up front. You have to look behind the words. Here he says the, the characteristic features of Indian society, of Indian culture. Well, it's easy just to say, well, that's their problem then. But behind that, he's saying that this Indian culture represents the spiritual vibration national spiritual vibration of the various countries in this planet. And so the spiritual vibration is that search for God. Now let me go in a little more deeply to what it means to have a search for God. You know, Swami Kriyananda, he was such a brilliant teacher. And I was recently listening to one of his talks on how to accelerate your spiritual growth or, or quicken your spiritual growth. It was, it's a wonderful talk. It's available through uh, treasures along the path and along with hundreds of other talks <coughs> and really treasures that whole effort to uh, offer in a very easy, searchable way, the various talks of Swami Kriyananda and other teachers, it really is a treasure. And so I urge you, if you're wanting to deepen your relationship with God and with the disciple-guru relationship, listen to those talks of Swami. Listen to Master's voice. Do everything you can to live more in the vibration of God. But let me come back to this um, theme that Swami was talking about in this talk. And I'll explain it in my words rather than trying to quote him. But he said that as God creates the created universe, God is behind and beyond the created universe. Lahiri Mahashaya said, that God took 1% of his consciousness and used that 1% to create everything that is in creation, including the whole of the universe, the visible and invisible universe, and the astral universe, and the causal universe. He took a tiny portion, and, and in, instead of having a pure, blissful, still, intelligent energy, he... Might, one might say projected that energy outward in an outward direction in order to bring uh, creation into manifestation. Now, in the projection of that in an outward direction, what it does, it does a couple of things. 
Swami used the image of a light bulb. As you get farther away from the source of that light bulb, it gets dimmer and dimmer. But each of those photons coming from that light bulb projected outward become more and more individualized and separated until at vast different distances, they, they may be vastly separated. And so that's just an analogy of God's projection of his consciousness in an outward direction uh, creates the appearance of separation, which is also the appearance of our individuality or our ego. And as that projection goes farther and farther out, there is less and less of the apparent, here we're talking about light, but of any of the consciousness of God. And so at the very dim extent outward, there's, there's barely any consciousness at all. Now, now, there's always consciousness because there is nothing else existing in the universe except consciousness. But uh, taking it on a physical plane, the, the mineral and rock kingdom have very, very little self-awareness, one might say. There is self-awareness there. Master said that after becoming enlightened, he could remember all of his past incarnations, including when he was a diamond. So he was aware of that existence as a diamond. Well, grad, there's very little awareness in, in the mineral kingdom and very little uh, self-determination. A rock just sits there. It can't move, it can't express itself, it can't do anything. But it's there and there's some dim consciousness. Uh, the, the, the plant kingdom has more of an ability, it can, as it, as it develops, it can move a little bit, it can turn its leaves, it can, a sunflower can turn to follow the sun. It has a little bit of movement. It has consciousness, but not a deep self-awareness of that consciousness. And in this progression, it's all kind of automatic on a conveyor belt. And then you come into the animal kingdom, and with the animal kingdom, you have the two things. You have the ability to move, and you have the ability to function through the senses. And, but still, that the functioning through the senses brings the consciousness in an outward direction. Then you come to man, and man finally has individualized self-will, and he has a highly enough developed nervous system so that he can become self-aware, aware of the divinity that resides within. But remember that projection is still going outward, and so our tendency is to go outward and relate to the world through the senses. Now, a person, I remember looking at a Life magazine and it showed the evolution and it showed the, you know, the fiery earth and then um, gradually there were little sea creatures and then animals on land and dinosaurs and then 
gradually it came up and there was man and finally uh, the glorious uh, perfection of evolution in humankind, Cro-Magnon uh, Cro man. And, but, <laughs> you know, the yogis and, and um, Sri Yukteswar pointed out that's just a little part of the cycle. That's the outward going cycle. And if we think that we're the end of the cycle, we aren't because our consciousness can still be very, very dark. But all this time, in the heart of it all, is divine consciousness. And that divine consciousness also has a magnetic pull. It pushes out, but that magnetic pull is, begins to pull us back. And so for us, that magnetic pull and the outward push are kind of balanced. It's, that's why uh, Master said to Swami, um, why does the earth go around the sun? And, and uh, Swami said, well, that's the centripetal force. Um, and then Master said, well, why then doesn't the earth just fly off into space? And Master said, well, that's the gravitational pull of the sun. And he thought Master was asking for a fundamental uh, astrology lesson. What Master was saying to him was the spiritual analogy. There's that outward momentum trying to get us to fly off, and then there's the gravitational, or in this case, the pull of consciousness trying to pull us back. Well, at the level of mankind, what we have is the divine gift of freedom of will, not very much, way, way, way less than you might think. But nonetheless, we have a little bit of freedom of will. We have about this much freedom of will. Think of ourselves as kind of like an uh, antenna. Well, we can turn our antenna away from the central source, or we can turn it toward the central source. If we turn toward the central source, then we pick up more and more of the consciousness of God pulling us back into him. That's the eternal verity. And so that push and pull has, Swami then went on to explain, as, as it's expressed, that outward push can be called tamasic energy. The back pulling, the pull back toward spirit can be called sattvic energy. And in between is just kind of energy spinning around, circling around between those two, uh, called rajasic energy. And in the Gita it said, everything is an admixture of these three qualities. So you and I are an admixture of those qualities. Now by the time we're ready to be on the spiritual path, to read the autobiography of a yogi, to try to live it, to take Kriya, to live, to meditate, We're, we have long had the antenna of our consciousness pointed toward that. Consciously, with determination for many lifetimes, we have been trying to come back. Our job in this lifetime is to allow that influence to become ever stronger. We don't really create our own 
wisdom, we simply pull away or dissolve away by, uh, by pointing in the right direction those, those elements that obscure uh, the conscious of who we really are from us. And so coming back to the autobiography of a yogi, Master was a pure expression of sattvic, God-centered consciousness that manifested in this world in order for us to be, have a model, in order for us to see how do you live, how do you think, what do you do if you're really completely God-centered, if your real focus is toward eternal verities, what does that life look like? And so the autobiography and master's life is an expression, well, here's what it looks like. And in that, he has many, many, many different themes. And you just take one of those themes and begin to meditate on it. So he talks about many miracles. Why does he talk about so many miracles? Well, he wants to break our illusion that this world seems to be, which seems to be so solid and we get so caught up in it that it's the only thing that exists. There are laws, there are vibrations, there's energy, there's consciousness beyond that. And if you get in tune with that, you can work miracles. That's why he puts them in there. Become a saint. And of course, you may be attracted. Oh, I wish I could work those miracles. If you do that, you're going to drive God away. What you should be thinking about is not, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if I, I, I could work miracles? But wouldn't it be wonderful if I didn't exist so that the miracles could just flow through that non-existent window or that transparent window that is me in my incarnation? And so just one final thought, it, that that search for a long time seems to be outside of ourselves. And so we use whatever tools we can. We use the mind, we use logic, we use uh, devotion, we use willpower. We use all of those things to try to help us in our search. But there comes a time where that search in and of itself becomes a hindrance to our further progress. Let me explain. An example came to my mind. So if you all of a sudden have the great desire to see the view, see the sights and sounds from the top of the Empire State Building, if you're in Seattle, then it requires a whole bunch of steps to get there. You've got to travel across the country. You've got to figure out, am I going to fly? Am I going to, how am I going to get there? Uh, how am I going to pay for it? What is the timing of it all? And all of that kind of thing. And finally, after all of these apparent processes, you arrive at the top of the Empire State Building, and there you are. Well, that works for a little portion of the journey. But the problem is, for the spiritual seeker, is that obviously I'm using the 
sights and sounds from the top of the Empire State Building as to represent the goal. In this case, samadhi, or um, consciousness of our unity with God, that's the goal. And so, as I say, as long as we're in delusion and thinking that we're in Seattle and we have to get there, then all of those logical processes and steps are, are necessary. That's part of that outward going energy that brings us into creation. But the true spiritual reality is that we're already there. We have always been there. We are already in communion with God. We have always been in communion with God. And so now, if you're already at the top of the Empire State Building, but you're sitting there, uh, maybe slumped against the wall, thinking, okay, now what do I have to do? I have to get a plane ticket. Now, do I have to get a... And so you're going through over and over again all of these logical steps of how to get there. Don't you and I, in our meditation, think that we have to do something in order to get to God? Isn't that one of the problems? So real spiritual progress doesn't come by thinking our way there. It comes by using the techniques such as Kriya Yoga, the breath, the various techniques to calm and internalize our energies so that they aren't pushing away in that restless, rajasic, um, semi-tamasic direction, but to internalize them so that they calm down and they become purely sattvic when they, or God-oriented. When they do that, then we realize, well, we don't have to go anywhere. God is right here. I'm God. I've always been God. But that's the process, that's the reason for meditation. It's not to get us from here to there. It's to get us to realize that we are already there where we're trying to get to. So we just have to remove the veils of delusion that keep us from seeing that. And so in the autobiography, what Master does is he keeps telling stories and examples and teachings that help us remove those veils of our consciousness so that we realize that we are already that which we're seeking. But it's, it's not easy coming from the state of ego to do that. And so one might say getting out of that delusion is the purpose of, of what the spiritual path is all about. So then let's come to a few of the other themes. There are so many themes that are important in helping us remove that delusion in the, in the autobiography. Um, so, so many of the chapters in the autobiography have to do with master. Most of the autobiography takes place before, certainly before he left India. Most of it takes place before that. Well, he left India when 
he was uh, 27 or 28 years old. And so, um, I guess 28 years old. At any rate, um, so the whole of the autobiography is basically his youth. Uh, you know, he was uh, 18 or 19 when he met Sri Yukteswar. But he talks about going and seeing this saint, the perfume saint, the tiger saint, the levitating saint, and all of these saints, one might say that the whole of his youth, at least that which he presented, talked about going and trying to be in the presence of those who had pure sattvic consciousness, those who were, were aware of their unity with God. And when he meets Master Mahasaya and, and realizes that he is in constant communication with Divine Mother, Master's heart just bursts with that yearning to be in that state. And, and you know, having lost, he, he tells us about losing his mother who represented not only uh, the comfort and compassion of an earthly mother, but represented as he was growing up his spiritual connection and, and the difficulty that he went through. He does that for us, for you and me. He didn't have to really go through that, but he, he, all of those things in autobiography, he's showing us, you know, that longing, that longing for an earthly mother and for the spiritual sustenance that she was giving him ultimately becomes a substitute of our longing for Divine Mother as he had that great vision. And because of, of Master Mahashaya uh, kind of intervened on, on Master's behalf and said, tonight you'll have that vision. And Master had the vision of Divine Mother looking at him and saying to him, yes, I was in those two beautiful eyes that you loved so much, but I've been in the eyes of many mothers. I have always been your mother. I will always be your mother. And so that relationship with Divine Mother and, and the reminding vibration of the saints, why go to the saints? Because why have a guru-disciple relationship? primarily because it's the magnetism of pure sattvic energy that helps call us within, helps reverse, helps us, enhances our own efforts to go within. And so spending, uh, Master had these saints in his neighborhood, as I said in the blog that came out on Friday. Most of us don't have a whole lot of saints in our neighborhood. Some of us, I think we actually do, but um, that's, that's for another talk. Uh, meaning that we're in the presence of people who are very saintly. But if we don't have that influence or don't have the high influence, then spend time with the books. Spend time with autobiography of a yogi. Spend time with essence of the Bhagavad Gita or conversations with Yogananda or any of 150 books by Swami or spend time reading. Uh, if, if you're advanced 
and settled in one path, then it's fine to read for inspiration the writings of other saints. Ananda Moy Ma said, for instance, toward the end of her life, um, she was kind of feeble and seemed ill, and her disciples said, oh, Ma, let us go get a doctor, let us help you. And she said, I'm not ill. This isn't sickness. This is just the call of the unmanifest calling me back. And so she was the, she was God. She was a, an incarnation of compassion. But she didn't want to be in that enclosed state of an incarnated entity. It was the call of the unmanifest calling us back. The yearning that you feel in your heart the desire for God, that is the call of God calling you back. And so I was talking with a dear friend yesterday who said he kind of feels bad because he wants to be, uh, he's a little discontent with, you know, he feels he wants to be closer to God than he is. Well, God is, it's only God. And it's God putting that feeling and that consciousness in our hearts in order to make us yearn. And gradually we yearn more and more purely for God alone. And if we spend time with autobiography of a yogi and these other great books, then that yearning will go stronger and stronger. And the method by which we will satisfy that yearning will go grow clearer and clearer. So spend time with the saints. Concentrate on your relationship to Yogananda. The mere reading of his books, to be in his presence, the more you do that, the more powerfully his consciousness will come alive. It's his consciousness, it's God's consciousness that gradually melts these veils of delusion that keep us from knowing him. Our job, we can't melt those on our own. We can't lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But what we can do is we can keep the antenna of our yearning, the antenna of our devotion and of our consciousness pointed toward God. And if we do that, it's as if that band of magnetism can work more powerfully on us. So the way Ananda Moy put it, we're on a train. We don't have any control over the way the train is traveling, how fast it's traveling, what the tracks are. That train is traveling toward God. But we have this much self-will we can turn and head toward the front of the train or toward the back of the train. Well, you and I, my friends, should be racing toward the front of the train as fast as we can, and that's what this week is about. That's what Inner Renewal Week is about. That's what Satsang is about, is to all of us come together and spend at least a little bit of time, one week, working together and uh, reinforcing in each other the inner renewal of that search for God. And so,
during this week, let's work on it. So let me come back. I'll just, I just want to touch on two or three more of the things um, that I touched on. Um, Master also talks in autobiography about the resistance of worldly-minded people to the spiritual search and how you have to work against that. His own brother, to a certain extent his own father, tried to resist, and he has several chapters in there about how his family tried to hold him back in various ways and how he had to essentially break away from that familial. Well, maybe we're not dealing with our own physical family trying to hold us back, but we are dealing with the pull of the world and of our tendencies that we still have from that outward pushing journey. We still have some tendencies that are pulling us in an outward direction. And we have to work to resist against those. We have to throw a bundle of clothing out the window and try to get to the Himalayas um, and, and run away from home. We have to run away in our, con all of this is consciousness. But see, behind these stories and examples are teachings for our life, for, for what we have to do. And so, coming to the exercise that I would like, the autobiography is filled, filled, filled with practical advice for how to live this spiritual life. My suggestion is that you take, between now and Wednesday, um, because I'm going to ask on Wednesday how many of you actually did this exercise. I'm going to suggest that you take whatever chapter in there that you resonate with the most, or pick one at random, and take a notebook and begin to read through. And as I say, look behind the story. Look behind the sentence to see what is Master saying here? What is he saying? when he says the characteristic culture, uh, if, uh, feature of Indian culture is the search for God. What does that actually mean? What does it mean to me? What does it mean? And then, so go through the chapter and see what lessons, what practical teachings are there. And then from that, pick out two or three actual to-do items that I am going to try to do these in my life. Don't pick out too many, just pick out two or three. You know, if we pick out too many, we won't do any of them. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know, if you're sitting down to a meal and maybe you can have potatoes and maybe you can say, oh, I think I'll have some peas and you put the peas in your mouth, and you chew those up together. Okay, you can do a couple. But if you say, oh, I think I'll have some pasta, and I think I'll have some panini, and I think I'll have some pecan pie, and you put it all in, you can't swallow any of it. You can't chew any of it. And so pick out two or three and 
put down a to-do item. And don't just put it down generally. Put it down specifically. So maybe one of your to-do items is, I want to spend more time in the company of Yogananda. What does that translate to? Maybe it comes down to every night before I go to sleep, I'm going to spend at least 10 minutes reading autobiography of a yogi and thinking about what the message was and maybe reflecting a little bit on how my day-to-day -day related to the message that I feel there. Just, I'm making this up. You do your own, but bring it down from the general lessons that are there to the specific teachings that you resonate with, and then for two or three of those, put down the to-do items that you are ready to commit to. And I say, as I said, I'll ask whether you did that exercise, but also if you would like to share with others, you can send to, um, go to the link for this, this, this online course and uh, just send to Jitendra um, uh, whatever was really working for you. And then he can share that kind of as a chat box. So as I said, this week is for all of us to work together to help inspire each other. And so don't be passive in it. Be an active participant in it. Do this exercise and share what is working for you. If we do that, we will help truly reinforce each other. So Davy will now speak. God bless you. We'll see you, see you more during the week. Thank you, Jyotish. That was quite inspiring and beautiful. So, how to live autobiography of a yogi. <clears throat> quite a challenge, isn't it? You know, I've been recently reading another autobiography that a dear friend of mine sent to me, and it's Gandhi's autobiography called my, the story of my experiments with truth. And it's very curious, Gandhi was writing his autobiography about the same time that Master was as well. One in India, one in America. But in the introduction, Gandhi says something very curious. He said, many people have urged him, had urged him to account, make an accounting of his life in autobiography. And he wasn't sure, he could see the pros and cons, but then one friend said to him, why have you set upon such an adventure? Autobiographies are peculiar in the West. I know of no one in India who has written an autobiography. And that's a very interesting thought. So Gandhi thought about it and he said, yes. The reason in the West they write it is they're more self-focused not having the teachings, the understanding of the nature of our soul as being one with all creation. And so Gandhi called his autobiography the story of my experiments with truth, not focusing it on himself. Master, maybe by the same process one doesn't know, 
I called his work Autobiography of a Yogi, which is in a sense a paradox, isn't it? Because what is an autobiography? Dictionary definition, the personal account written of one's own life. And then what is a yogi? A yogi is someone, as Master describes it in the autobiography, a yogi is someone who, by following step-by-step -step scientific practices, is able to free his consciousness from awareness of the body and experience himself as a free soul. And Master said, there are many yogi Christs who, through the practice of yoga, have found complete freedom. In fact, he was originally going to call autobiography Yogi Christ of Modern India. That was the original title. And so, a paradox. How can someone who is a true yogi, as Master certainly was, who has transcended a sense of personal identity, how could he write an autobiography telling his life story? And that's part of the power of this book, because you don't have to get into it very far before you realize his perspective is different. It's subtle, but it's different. Even in reading Gandhi's, it's very much the story of the events of his life and how they affected him. Well, Master has the stories of his life, but they're from a different perspective. They're from the, the view of a, someone who doesn't have a sense of individuality. It's the divine observer who sees all of life as God's drama, dream, dream drama and dream play. And so part of what intrigues us and draws us in, this at least was true for me, is I couldn't figure out who's telling this story. Who is this? Because I could feel it wasn't from an egoic perspective. And even when he tells the stories of childhood and family and all this, nevertheless, there is that freedom of consciousness that expansion of awareness, which is not limited to someone bound by ego. And that's part of the reason that this book has influenced so many lives. Jyotish and I over the years have done quite a number of radio interviews, a few television interviews, and I can't tell you the number of times that just a newscaster, an interviewer on a, a worldly station will, will say we're disciples of Yogananda. He said, oh, I, we read Autobiography of a Yogi. I read it many years ago. So many people have been touched by that book. And when our beloved Swami Kriyananda, the first day, well, for those of you who have read his, um, auto, his autobiography, The New Path, or have seen the movie The Answer, you know how he was struggling and struggling to find truth, to find meaning, eternal verities. He was suffering. He, he was a brilliant young man. He could have done anything, but he was looking for truth. And he tried this and he tried that. 
and nothing satisfied him. And then one day, his footsteps led him into a bookstore in New York, and he saw autobiography there on the shelf, and it drew him. It, the face, he said, I never saw such beauty and such purity of consciousness. And he picked it up and he opened it, but he noticed that it was dedicated to Luther Burbank, an American saint. And at that time, Swamiji was still a, a skeptical intellectual filled with doubts. And he said, oh, there can't be American saints. And he closed the book, walked away. But the next day, he was still in the city of New York, and he, that face kept drawing him, and he went back, and he, he, he tried to walk, well, I'm sorry, I got this story wrong. He tried to walk away that same day, but his, his feet couldn't move, just as we read in autobiography of a yogi when Master tried to walk away from Sri Yukteswar, his feet were immobile, and so Swami was drawn back, and he picked up that book, and he held it to his heart, and he knew that it was everything he'd been looking for, all the anguish and tears and frustration. He had found it, and he went back and he read it cover to cover, and he said, amidst tears of joy and tears of laughter, because he had found finally his safe haven that gave his life meaning the search for eternal verities and the concomitant disciple-guru relationship, finished the book, <clears throat> took the next bus he could find from New York to Los Angeles, three days nonstop, and finally, through some mis going here and there, finally he had an interview with Master at his Hollywood church, and he knelt before him. And what a thrilling moment that was for all of us. Because if that moment had not happened, I know certainly in my life, I would not be standing here today talking about autobiography of a yogi. That day in 1948, I was two years old. And yet that moment shaped my life. And Swamiji knelt before Master and he asked him, Master asked him, what did you think of my book? And Swamiji said, it was wonderful. And Master said, matter-of-factly, Swami writes, that's because it, I put my vibrations in it. And Swami, who was so new to all this and vibrations, thought, how could a book have vibrations? And then he said, and yet when I thought about it, I knew that that book was alive, not just because of the ideas or the stories, but because it brought to me a higher awareness than I had ever experienced. And so that too is the power of the book, the perspective of someone who has, telling the story of someone who has transcended ego. And telling it in such a way that it magnetically calls all those who are suffering in their hearts for truth, for meaning, for understanding, and for life direction. And so the autobiography, again, it's paradoxical because it's not Master's story, it's your story. 
and it's my story because it's even though the details may be different and they are in each person's life of their search for God nevertheless that the suffering of the soul due to its separation from the source of its own being from the source of joy and beauty and love and truth all of those things that separation anguishing anguishing monotony as master said and then a book a book that is our story even though we may not recognize it at first even though it seems a foreign culture and foreign words foreign customs but it's our story because there is only one game in town and that's the search for god and people do it in so many different ways just look at the news for today and see all the ways wise and foolish that people are seeking happiness and yet behind it all the soul is seeking the harbor of from which it came from which its little ship launched who knows how long ago out into the wide sea of delusion and the storms that come and the ships that we meet along the way some benign some malignant all of those things and then finally our little ship says i want to come back to safe harbor and autobiography is our story that tells that and so we can live it the more we get into it the more we can say this is my story how to live autobiography maybe we need to start with the question how do we read autobiography of a yogi because as we were reviewing it in preparation every chapter i would read i would think this is the most important chapter in the book no this is the one that really says it all and then i come to the next chapter and i would say no this is on and on and on and so read it i don't think there's a sentence in there that isn't filled with meaning we were talking yesterday we said we could give a whole class a whole week long classes on autobiography then we said we could give a whole week long series of classes on one sentence in the autobiography and we wouldn't get to the the bottom of it the full extent of it and so how to read autobiography attentively remember in the story in years in my master's hermitage where uh treasures against time when shri akteshwar would expound these great teachings and but he was very mindful of the attentiveness of those listening and yogananda said as soon as my mind would wander shri akteshwar would stop and there was one incident he mentioned where shri akteshwar said you're no longer with me and he said i am master i could repeat every word you said and maybe he could but he said you were thinking of three buildings it was it was the ranchi school mount washington and encinitas he said those will come in the future right now you pay attention here get your training and so how to read it and i i find this myself read it as long as your absorption is strong if you're just oh, i'm going to finish the chapter here skim through these last couple of pages that's not how you read it 
You read it with full heartfelt attention and absorption, and then Master can speak to you. He can speak to you through his own voice, through those words, through his vibrational power through those words, and he can help you to understand what he means because these are not simple concepts that he's presenting, even though his jovial manner, his sense of humor, his simplicity, his lightheartedness, all of those are there. But beneath it all is the most profound understanding of truth. And so how do we live it? Jyotish mentioned some themes. There are other central themes that we can focus on. One, how to live our life in such a way, given the fact that all of our karma patterns are different, the dharma in each individual life will be different, how do we live it in such a way that God is put at the pinnacle of all of our activities? And the chapter, that explains this so interestingly is, I joined the Swami order. And it's one of the few chapters, again, where Master actually gives a date to an event in his life. He said, he doesn't say when he was born, he says when he goes to America, but that's the beginning of a world mission. But he said, I recall July 1914, I had finished my high school studies I came to, excuse me, I finished my college studies, 1914. And he comes to Sri Teshwar and has said, my father is trying to get me to work in the family business, essentially, in the railway company. And he said, I've asked you many times, Sri Teshwar, will you make me a Swami? May I join the monastic order? And you always declined. Now, will you accept me and make me a Swami? And he said, Shri Teshwar smiled and said, yes, we'll do it with a non-ceremonial initiation. And he dipped some silk in ochre dye and wrapped it around him. He said, choose a name. And he said, I thought for a moment, very interestingly, we brood so much about spiritual names, which is the right one. I thought for a moment, Yogananda, bliss through union, union. and and." Then he, he initiates him in the Swami order. But then Master goes on to a long description. What's the difference between a Swami and a yogi? A Swami, Swa means self. He who is trying to discover his true self. And, but a yogi, a, a monastic, he was renouncing all worldly ties, but a yogi can be in any walk of life, east or west, married or single, monastic or householder, young or old, a yogi, as we said earlier, is he or she who practices scientific techniques from the ancient science of yoga developed from un time untold in India. India's great gift to the world. He who practices those with the goal of soul freedom, of self-realization. And then Master says, a very important line in the autobiography, he says, I'll just quote it so I get it right here. 
no matter what our karmic lot, this is possible to fulfill one's earthly responsibilities, meaning being in the world, not being a swami, not being a monastic, being in the world, to fulfill one's earthly responsibilities is indeed the higher path, provided the yogi maintains a mental uninvolvement with egotistical desires and plays his part as a willing instrument of God. Isn't that interesting? It's the higher path to fulfill one's in earthly responsibilities as a yogi. Sri Yukteswar did it. Lahiri Mahashaya did it. Many people, part of Ananda, are aspiring to do it. So to live as a yogi, but with mental uninvolvement with things of the world, that's no easy thing. And so how to live it? Look at your life right now. Am I putting God first? Or are of these other things really my primary focus? It's not that they can't be a part of your life, but to put God first. Master said, for him, his dharma was to be a monastic. He said, I could not see letting anything come before my relationship with God. He also gives us this great encouragement. It's the higher path to fulfill one's earthly responsibilities. And so how to live? Autobiography of a yogi. Live as a yogi, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, mother, father, son, daughter. And you know, interestingly, when it, earlier in the autobiography of a yogi, when master has finished high school, He's fulfilled his father's wishes, and he's decided, now I'm going to begin my search for God. They can't hold me back anymore. And, but then he began feeling his ties to his family, who he loved. He said, particularly after my mother's passing, my two younger brothers, I had a deep love for them and his father, and he was crying. I, somehow that little episode had never jumped out at me before. And I went up and, Master said, I went up into my little attic room for Garpar Road. Many of us have been there. And I remember being there with Swamiji. Very great blessing. And I prayed, please, God, let me make this step now in my life. And he said, tears were pouring down my face at the thought of leaving my family. He said, but then all of a sudden, I felt a divine change come over me, and I was mentally uninvolved. And I was thinking, you know, if Master's mother had still been alive, that might have been a harder step for him. Perhaps that's why she left early in his life, not to hold him back, because that human bond was very, very strong between those two. And so then as he came down, dried his tears, he was ready. And so how to live every day before you go out about your business, inwardly try to achieve a state of mental uninvolvement. It's not that you're cold or you don't love people or you don't care about them or serve them or any of those things, but try to go forth each day with a sense of inner freedom. I do my duty 
but my thoughts always are on you, God. So putting God first in your life, another one, one might say each of these is an underlying theme, but that's why uh, God is center everywhere, circumference nowhere. Every point of the autobiography can be the center if, if it's appropriate for you at that time. But the theme of discipleship. And curiously, I often wondered why that first line that we've been referring to so much in autobiography, the concomitant disciple-guru relationship. Usually, we speak of the guru-disciple relationship, don't we? But Master leads with that because that's discipleship is our path to God, following the attitudes and the practices. And again, he illuminates discipleship from so many different angles, being obedient to the guru or not, being serviceful to the guru or not, accepting the guru's Discipline, in the case of Sri Yukteswar, severe, dra drastic is what he called it, that drastic discipline to accept it or not. And so the role, the discipleship as he presents it, and as it is in truth, is far from a passive thing. It takes the greatest strength of will and self-surrender to be a true disciple, as Master demonstrated for us. But then the fruits of it, the union with God, that divine expansion of awareness, all of those things are the fruits of it. But the attitudes, and sometimes, because we don't have seemingly a living guru, but in truth, Master is very much alive, we can think, well, I'm not sure, maybe I'll follow this person a little bit, or maybe I'll go to satsangs with this teacher a little bit. My friend, don't. <laughs> That's all I can say. You are only hindering your own attunement and your spiritual growth. No one can give you what your guru gives you. No one can give you the magnetism and the power to find God. And these other things are clouding your awareness. Be mindful of that. Uh, I'll, I'll share a story that one of Master's really fine direct disciples, Roy Eugene Davis, told. And he told it here at Ananda, so I feel publicly, so I feel like I can share it. When he was with Master, Master said, don't read books by other teachers. Don't, you just read my teachings. He was just getting started. But Roy didn't listen to him. And he, under his bed, he had a box of books that he was reading. And I don't feel like I'm telling this out of school because Roy told us. And then one day in public, Master pointed to, or he, there was a small group and Master patted him on the back and said, Roy is a spiritual prostitute. He said that publicly. And so that's how he saw it. The guru saw it. Follow my teachings. And of course in autobiography, there's the chapter, The Sleepless Saint, where Master said, I was getting a little bogged down with ashram responsibilities. This was when he was in Sri Teshwar's ashram. And um, kind of the discipline of sadhana, and I thought, I'm going off to the Himalayas. And Sri Teshwar tries to dissuade him, gently, not 
firmly, which is surprising for the way Shirteshwar is, but he wanted him to learn by his own free will. And so he goes off and we know he wanders around and he has such a hard time finding Ram Gopal Musumdar. Finally he does. And, and he said, can you give me samadhi? And being a true man of God, Ram Gopal Musumdar says, that's not for me to do. That's for your guru to do. He blesses him and gives him an experience. But the guru-disciple relationship, the role of the disciple, how to live autobiography, deepen your discipleship. We have the beautiful discipleship vows, which everyone has taken. Read them. Meditate on them. Go deep in them. Autobiography of a yogi is the the part of the power is it reveals that relationship which we don't have in the West. We have monastic orders, we have a father superior, a mother superior, but not the guru that works, gets in there in the confusion of your own delusions and helps to pull you out. And so draw from that discipleship and the attitudes of humility and service and self-offering. You know, in India, the term, they don't use disciple, which is rooted in the, in the West in discipline. They use the word chela, meaning child. But you know the root of chela? To serve. I found that very interesting. So to serve the guru, maybe we can't, you know, bring him a meal or a cup of tea, but we can serve him by our right attitude, by our spiritual efforts and meditation, and by serving his mission, however humbly, sweeping the garden paths, digging up broken water pipes. This is serving the guru's mission. And if we can see that and understand that Part of self-offering is not just attitudinal, but it's action. It's what we do with our lives. So again, every day, when you're going about your service, at least for a moment, have the thought, Master, I'm doing this for you. I'm setting up these chairs in this room for you. I'm clearing up this underbrush for you. And the more we can see everything we do in service to the guru, the better, our, the more powerful our, is our discipleship. And then part of discipleship too, with our line of gurus, is the path of Kriya Yoga. We have a panel of Jaya and Pranaba and Anandi, who will speak tomorrow, particularly on how the autobiography reveals the science of Kriya Yoga. But I, I want to say this to you as encouragement, because I've been meditating or trying to for many years, but one can never stop learning about the techniques. One can never stop trying to do them better. And so in your discipleship, really say, Master, what did you teach us? Let me really do the energization exercises, not mechanically, but with understanding of the principles behind them and putting them into practice. How do, let me understand the power 
of all of our techniques, Hong Sa, Om, Kriya, the higher Kriyas, I, it's actually very exciting to me to, it's like the more you try with the techniques, the more the doors open. And you look back and you think, I really didn't know what I was doing for quite a long time, but I kept trying. And through the grace of the guru, through putting energy into the practices, they guide you, the master guides you. Or maybe you see a line in something he said or listen to one of Swamiji's tapes. But nevertheless, that's part of discipleship, this path of Kriya. And finally, how to live autobiography, underlying themes, to live life with your heart open to everything, to all of life, to all people. No one is a stranger to see no one. Someone gave us some years ago a first edition of Master's Book of Prayer Poems, Songs of the Soul, and it's signed by him, 1924. And it said, there is one breath that enlivens all beings. We are all children under the one Heavenly Father, God. And that vibration is there in autobiography, that there are, no one is a stranger, the foolish man or the wise man, the beautiful Anandamoy Ma, the saint, or the cauliflower robber. That, that you can feel in his description of every person an underlying blessing, an underlying reverence for the God in that being. And so to live our lives in such a way that we, ex we share that, we try to, and particularly in the times in which we live, to look past the forms, look past the differences, but to see the divine in the wise and the foolish. And Swami had that beautiful line, wise are foolish, we're your children, from that song, uh, all your children, mother, call you. And so to live our lives in that way where we can share that love with all. And people sense it. You can be standing in a grocery line just trying to bless all the people in front of you, blessing the poor checkout clerk who's harried and trying to keep up with everything. But it, makes, it changes everything. It changes life from being, oh, I have to get from point A to point B to how beautiful God is playing through this soul or that soul and to love the expression of God in each person. And Master's Autobiography of a Yogi is a gift that for the world, it's a guide for life. It's a guide for how to be a yogi. It's a guide for how to find God and the eternal verities. So we hope that you can use these thoughts in such a way to deepen your discipleship, your connection with master, your practices, and to become more and more one with that book so that the autobiography of a yogi is your autobiography and the fulfillment and the joy that we feel 
is your fulfillment and joy. And just <clears throat> as in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says to Arjuna, better than the, the, uh, the ascetic and better than the jnani yogi, better than names all these different paths to God. Krishna, who is Babaji in this incarnation, says to Arjuna, who is master in this incarnation, he says, O oh Arjuna, be thou a yogi. Let us all live our lives in such a way that we too become yogis. God bless you.